The Athletic. Hugo Lloris said on Thursday night that Spurs were a disgrace in their lack of basics and lack of fundamentals against Dinamo Zagreb. On Sunday, Jose Mourinho successfully harnessed that anger and shame for the trip to Aston Villa, which became Spurs' best win of the year in their 22nd game. So the question is, can Spurs take a step forward without having to have taken a step back first? You're listening to The View from the Lane. My name's Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined, as always, by James Moore. Uh, James, that was Spurs' best win since Arsenal, wasn't it? I mean, I think in league position, that, that's the thing people are saying, isn't it? But I, I, I wonder whether, if you kind of factor form in, like beating Fulham maybe was slightly better. I kind of also think beating Leeds, I don't know, that feels like that was a slightly more convincing result, if you know what I mean. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like to beat a, a, a team in the top half of the Premier League is never bad. I, I'm not sure it's necessarily better than any of those others. I was certainly more infused by Palace and Burnley. Yeah, and I guess they didn't have... Villa without Grealish is a very different, That's true. different prospect. On the other, on the other side, Spurs did handicap themselves by leaving good players out as well. So you've got to factor that in. Yeah, given the week that Spurs have had, and you know, terrible against Arsenal, even worse against Dinamo Zagreb, and that just that sense from Thursday night, really, that the whole world was caving in to go to a difficult away game and to pick a very strange team, which we'll get onto because that is definitely worth discussion by itself. To go to a game like that and then look really really shaky for the first 20 or 30 minutes and frankly there were times watching that I thought, oh my god it's going to be there were some moves where Aston Villa picked through the static Tottenham defence and I thought oh my god it's Sheffield United away July 2020 all over again they're going to concede exactly the same goals and you'll get Roden and Sanchez stood there looking at each other and it's going to be awful it's going to be the really really painful defeat again and then the whole international break will just be hell because It'll be, can he survive? Can he survive? Can he survive? And they won. And they won. And actually, in the second half, James, I thought they were really comfortable. They didn't, Villa didn't really look like scoring outside the first 20 minutes. Well, it's funny. And I tweeted this after the game last night, but like, at, at, when they were, at the moment they went 1 0 up, that felt like it sort of flattered them quite a bit. Yeah. And then when they go 2 0 up on the hour or whatever it was, that really felt like it flattered them loads. And that it was ludicrous, really, that they were 2 0 up, you know. Maybe by that point, that kind of 1-0 maybe wouldn't have been too bad. But to be 2-0 up at that point was madness. But then actually by like sort of 80, 85 minutes, that felt like it was an entirely fair reflection of the way the game had gone. Like Spurs played really well after that. Looked like they got quite a bit of confidence back. Kept the ball well. Kept the ball like in the attacking third as well. They didn't they didn't retreat back into their own half or their own third and, and pump the ball away and wait for it to come back. They actually kept the ball in attacking positions far better than they have done even in games where they played quite well, actually, really, you've got to say, you know, they, uh, we, we talked about game management a few times in the last few weeks, and I think that was probably an example of a game they managed really well once they got their kind of stranglehold on the scoreline. I think, you know, if you look at their possession in the last sort of 25 minutes, half hour, it'd probably be pretty favourable for Spurs, I would expect. So, yeah, I, I think on the balance of play over 90 minutes, I said that was a more than fair result for Spurs. Um, and yeah, like you, know, I was very worried after 25 minutes, half an hour, because they looked so bad. They looked really bad. Like they really looked like they were missing the, the, the and I don't want to make this a whole Gareth Bale thing, but it looked like they were really missing that kind of outball that you get from Bale, yeah. who's maybe got a bit more mobility to kind of pull into a bit of space, be it out wide or through the middle when the ball's down the other end of the pitch. So he gives himself an opportunity to turn and run. 
And I think maybe Vinicius is a little bit more sort of green and he'll, he'll stay quite central and be within sort of five yards of a centre-back who's then going to take the ball like him quite quickly. But yeah, it, it, in the end they got there and you have to say they deserve that. And uh, whether or not Aston Villa have Grealish, it's still good to get the points. You can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 per month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. I mean, I think there were actually quite a lot of really good individual performances. I think that Ndombele and Hoiberg, given that they both look exhausted, I thought did really, really well. Uh, they had control of the game. I didn't think Villa could really lay a finger on Ndombele in midfield, and he had some great individual moments. Hoiberg just kept on going and going and going, even though you can tell he looks pretty tired. But the the two players that really stood out to me were Lucas and Kane. At the start of the season, it was all about uh, Son and Kane, and then we had a bit of Bale and Kane. But in the last month or so, you could you could argue that Lucas is actually Lucas has been the next most consistent and effective player. Apart from Kane, he started 10 of Spurs' last 13 games. He started seven of their last eight in the league. He has contributed in all sorts of different ways to the win against West Brom, the win against Burnley, the win against Palace, this win, even the win against Fulham. He came on and played a really big role off the bench. So I uh, I think he's doing fantastically well. And, you know, there's a lot of negatives to, to talk about about Tottenham at the moment, and we will get into some of those. But if we're looking for someone to who is playing in a positive way and affecting the game and helping Spurs win games, it's Lucas. And this is even more impressive, I think. And I've just written a piece about this, which we published this morning, saying that um, when Ndombele was moved back into midfield a month or two ago, uh, I think for the West Brom game on the 7th of February, if you ask most Spurs fans who they would want to play in that role, I reckon, I don't know, 60% would have said Delhi, and maybe 30% would have said Lo Celso, And then maybe 10% would say Lucas. That Those numbers might be wrong. Maybe more people would have said Delhi. James, you're shaking your head. It would definitely have been less than 10% for Lucas to play as a number 10. Definitely. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Delhi was definitely the favourite. Sorry. Delhi was definitely the favourite in that, in that space. But... Lucas has kept Delhi out of the team and he's playing really, really well. Like he's so yeah. hungry. He runs with the ball. He gets the ball up the pitch. He takes people on. He creates. He scores sometimes. He defends. He presses. This is going to sound stupidly simplistic, like, like genuinely stupid. But I, I don't think Premier League sort of centre backs and defensive midfielders are used to like a player in that position actually car- like running with, running with them with the ball at pace. You don't, not many players actually do that. That's how I feel when I watch Jesse Lingard. You know, I was watching him in the in the West Ham game. Like, I'm, you know, he's not not really relevant to this podcast, but I'm a big Lingard fan. I think he's really good, and he's one of those rare players who does that. Like, he runs forward quickly with the ball down the middle, and is technically good. And his defenders are like, "Christ, what do we do?" Yeah, they just don't know how to handle it, do they? They're just like not used to having like a player in a central position run directly at them, and absolutely, you know. And he will quite often do that thing where he'll beat like three, four players, and then lose it. But he in this in this last like month, he has got quite a lot better at kind of beating two, three, four players and then shifting the ball quickly. And I think I mean, that's probably partly down to having played there for a few weeks. I guess as being slightly more used to being in those congested areas. 
I would caveat that whole thing by saying he has been a sort of patchy player the entire time he's been at Tottenham, hasn't he? Yes, definitely. I mean, if you think, like, you look back to kind of purple patches that he's had, say, start of 2018-19, when he scored the two goals at Old Trafford, I think he scored against Fulham as well, and he started that season really well, uh, and then kind of fell away, basically... I mean, to be fair, it was quite a good time to come good again in the, the Champions League semi-final. So, you know, shouldn't criticise him too much for that. But he got the hat-trick in that game and then was it the hat-trick against Huddersfield? Was that before or after? It might have been before, actually. But he got two hat-tricks in like the space of sort of two weeks or whatever. And then kind of dipped again by by the start of the next season. He was sort of back to being a bit, bit, bit sort of erratic. And I can't think that he really had an amazing spell at any point last season. I thought he was quite good in the first few weeks of Mourinho. Remember he scored at West Ham. Yeah, that's true. He scored at West Ham. Yeah. Scored at West Ham. Um, I remember him scoring. He scored at Wolves as well. Scored at Wolves. Early, that was a really good win. I mean, look, v- very few players play like at that level consistently for a whole season. Like they're they're the best players in the world, the ones that do that. Yeah. But what you need like is for him to play like that like half the time, yeah. and then it'll be like a really really big player for Spurs. Because if you look at like Son, I mean, I'm not digging Son out, but this season more than any other, he's kind of managed to find a way of getting goals and assists when he hasn't been playing as well. You know, someone like Kane is is like a freak, really, that he's constantly yeah, exactly. at it all the time. But anyone else, you know, they're, they're going to kind of have dips and troughs in form. Poor peaks and troughs in form, I should say. Dips and troughs would be quite bad, wouldn't it? If you were, if you were having dips and troughs, who's yeah. that? I don't know. Vincent Paolo Chavanzani or someone like that. And also we should talk about Harry Kane, who I thought, again, I think he looks quite tired at the moment, but I thought he was very good yesterday. He was obviously involved with Lucas in that first goal, which came with Lucas bursting forward, played a one-two with Kane Costa Vinicius, and then James. He was uh, he was tackled by Cash for the for the penalty, which he converted. I thought. Do you I not thought, think it was a foul? No, I saw Kane getting quite a lot of stick for being. I think Gary Lineker called him disingenuous or something on Twitter. Yeah. On Twitter, and I thought, come on, he got fouled. I don't even know. It's Leicester won a game yesterday, so Lineker is again remembered. He's a Leicester fan. He <laughs> does kind of have these. He has these moments where he forgets and remembers he's a Leicester fan. He forgot he was a Leicester fan for about 20 years before sort of November 2015. Then when it looked like they might do quite well that season, he sort of remembered he needed to be sat there in his underwear at the end of the season. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was a foul. I, I thought it was a foul. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I think obviously. I've seen a few comments about like the way he planted his right foot when he, like the ball was running out of play. But obviously he, he, he was trying to do, a, I guess, like a sort of Cruyff turn and dragged the ball back and kind of got it wrong and then Cash has sort of clobbered him. Uh, it's definitely a foul and a penalty. I mean, I don't... If that one last week, that I, and I know a few, people have, a few people have said this, that if the Sanchez one on Lacazette last week is a penalty, then that is absolutely no way in the world that's not a penalty, that one. It's ludicrous to suggest it's like he's been clever. I mean, I, I, I actually just think he's miscontrolled the ball. <laughs> he's probably even yeah. lucky that he's miscontrolled the ball and then been wiped out. And look, there have definitely been moments where Kane has been quote-unquote clever. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I don't think this is one of them. Yeah, it's weird. It's like he's obviously cashing and made the tackle because Kane had let the pass, he'd let the ball run away from him and it was going out of play for a goal kick. But that's Cash's fault. It's not Kane's fault. Yeah. Kane's just there and Cash kicks him and Kane's happy to let, happy to be tripped and win a penalty in the box. I found some of that stuff slightly strange, but I did think in the main, Kane was good. Apropos of nothing, sorry, I've just remembered. And this is kind of testament to the fact that I've not looked at my fantasy team since like October. And my fantasy team is called Cash in the Matic. Cash in the Matic. Oh, right, I get it. It's one of those jokes that's slightly better written down than said said out loud, but yeah, not maybe. great in either form, I imagine. Maybe not one for the international audience either. 
No, no. I mean, uh, no. I wouldn't. How would you? How would you begin to describe Cash in the Attic to our American listeners? Yeah, I, I wouldn't even. Know. I don't even know who actually presents it. It's not. Um, it's not Dickinson, is it? Is it? it used did it used to be? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I've ever watched it. I'm more of a uh, Grand Designs and Dream Home Makeover guy. If you're interested. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Harry Kane's penalty was means that he is 100 Premier League goals away from Alan Shearer, who of course holds the all-time record for Premier League goals. Um, this is something that we did a piece on the other day, looking at whether or not Kane will break the record. Uh, I think he probably will. Um, I just think he's, you know, he's about to turn 28. Let's say I don't know, five seasons, 20 goals a season. Maybe he'll be slightly slower than that. I think if he st- if he stays in the Premier League, I'm sure he'll do it. I think his scoring rate will s- might slow down a bit when he's in his 30s as he starts to play slightly deeper. But one thing we've seen from Kane this year is that even though he is playing slightly deeper, uh, he's still getting good positions. He's still scoring penalties. He's still scoring lots from the sort of 20, 25 yard range. So I don't think he will. I don't think his scoring rate will massively drop off. Like the one, the one interesting comparison you can make is with Wayne Rooney, who was in a pretty pretty good position to break the record I'd say in about 2010 when Rooney was 25 and then of course he scored far fewer goals in his next six years in the Premier League but I think I just think Kane is a bit I think Kane is a bit fitter and stronger at 27 than Rooney was and more more likely to make that transition into a deeper role of success and that's why I I think Kane will do it. I'm going to say a thing and I'm going to I'm going to look at your reaction to see whether or not you think this is stupid Harry Kane is better than Wayne Rooney. I don't know. I think it's hard to say at this point. This is good for a podcast, isn't it? That, yeah. that reaction didn't, I mean, it really didn't I say. I thought a face which is like, hmm, I don't know. I think Rooney's more talented than Kane and more explosive. I think Kane has probably maximised his talent more than Rooney. Uh, although I don't know, I don't know what the last... I don't know what the second half of Kane's career is going to look like. Like, you know, you could, some people would point to the fact that Rooney's won his Champions League and millions of Premier League titles and cups and everything with, with United, which of course Kane hasn't done yet. But, uh, you know, I don't think that is necessarily the be all and end all. In terms of all round effectiveness, I don't know. It's a really interesting one. This is going to sound incredibly unprofessional. And if you're listening to this sat at home, then you know producer Tom didn't think it was that unprofessional. Did we talk about this two weeks ago? When we had that Lampard thing. Did we talk about this two weeks ago? I'm not sure. I remember talking to you about this. I don't know if we did it on a podcast. It's, uh, it's a good on, topic, though. If any of the listeners are not very bored of this, then please tweet us to let us know what you think. Because I, I don't know. I'd say Kane is... I think Kane's got a bit more finesse than Rooney. And also, I think Kane has adapted his game to losing his pace better than Rooney yeah, did. I definitely. think Rooney, I don't think Rooney actually managed that transition well. And Frank, you know, Rooney in midfield at Euro 2016 was rubbish. Rooney in midfield for Van Gaal's Man United wasn't very good. And I'm like a massive, massive Wayne Rooney fan. I think he was an incredible player. But I just don't think latter stage Rooney was that good, whereas I'm actually a bit more bullish about 33-year-old Harry Kane in a deeper role compared to how good Rooney was at that stage. That's just my opinion. I mean, you you wrote that he wants to play till he's about forty, right? Last week, yeah, he so does. Kane wants to play till he's forty. He's going to smash that record. 
and he'll smash the Premier League record and he'll get those other however what was that thing with the Shearer goals pre-Premier League how many was it? Oh yeah, so this is a very this is this is a, de- a debate that you often see on Twitter at this sort of time is uh, well Shearer's got the Premier League goals record, but he scored first division goals for Southampton before the inception of the Premier League in 1992. And should those should that be the target that Kane has to go for? Frankly, I think that that's nonsense. I think it's perfectly legitimate to count from the start of the Premier League in 1992. You know, everybody needs like a usable start point that we can all agree on for this kind of thing, just in the same way that people used to say it's a record since the second world war for example which again i think is a is a legitimate cutoff point Shearer like has the advantage of being able to have like a hundred odd matches in the old first division as like a sort of practice so they don't count so actually if you look at they got 23 goals in 118 matches in the old first division which is a bad record he's lucky that 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 bit doesn't count to his record because it's worse for his ratio it is worse for his ratio. It is worse for his ratio. Yeah, completely. And I'm sure if Kane had been playing, you know, I'm sure if, if Kane had been playing in sort of uh, the very, very early 1990s in the old first division, uh, he would have been pretty good. Of course, he wasn't really born then. But if you can imagine this this Harry Kane transplanted back uh, 30 years into that era of English football, I'm sure he'd have, he would have had a field Kane day. Kane would score goals in any era, probably. That's a good question. Uh, I guess that kind of de- depends on like... To what extent would he get kicked and be and be used to the amount of kicking that he'd get? Because he would get a lot of kicking. Yeah, that is true. One big factor from yesterday that I want to come on to. This is the kind of thing that can get forgotten because they won, but I think it's actually really important that, that we did discuss it. What a bizarre team selection! That was a <laughs> that was a really really strange team selection from Mourinho. Just look, he had Carlos Vinicius second Premier League start for Tottenham, Tanganga's third Premier League start of the season, Joe Roden's fourth Premier League start for Tottenham in his first since January, and Lacelso after coming back on Thursday making only his fifth Premier League start of the season and his first since December. Like it was a biz- it was a really really strange and surprising selection, even though it leaked out in the afternoon, so we weren't exactly shocked when the team sheet came out and it just when when the selection came out i thought that this was kind of classic Mourinho. the chips are down he's reaching for a kind of big grand gesture to spark a bit of reaction a bit of provocation out of the players and i do think that is what he did but it did clearly work like, I thought of those players, Roden settled into the game. Lacelso, I thought, was good at the maybe first hour, then got tired. Tanganga, shaky start, then settled, and I thought was pretty good second half. And Vinicius scored a goal and generally caused mischief, which is what he's there for. So it, it worked well, even though at the time I thought, wow, what, this is, this is uh, a big risk. It was a bit of a weird one. I mean, as you say, I mean, it was, definitely wasn't what I was expecting. I mean, even once people were kind of suggesting there were going to be big changes, I didn't think we'd see a, a 4-4-2 or what was sort of effectively a 4-4-2. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Tanganga and Roden, I thought, uh, they've been two players we've talked about a couple of times. Uh, and I think I've said before, I was surprised at how few chances they'd had over the last sort of six weeks, two months. Because I think they've both shown sort of promising signs, even in games where things haven't exactly worked out for them or for Spurs. They've looked like... Pretty decent performance. You know, Tanganga played really well against Manchester City and then sort of seemed to disappear. And I suppose lost that game 3 0, but he played quite well at right back. Um, and, you know, we know that's been a problem position this season. Roden 
obviously had a bit of a nightmare with that goal against Liverpool but other than that I think it's looked really good I mean he's had, obviously had the shaky moment against Chelsea as well or two shaky moments in that game but another young player with very little Premier League experience he kind of it kind of feels like it, it's sensible to give him to give him minutes I and mean, particularly now when perhaps you could argue there's a bit less to play for and maybe a bit less pressure I guess or, or maybe not this is going to sound incredibly negative and I know the kind of people uh, <laughs> I'm sure that, uh, there'll be a couple of tweets about what I'm about to say I, my worry with that team is that it's good enough to beat Aston Villa without Jack Grealish probably be good enough to beat Newcastle away the first weekend after the international break that isn't going to work against Manchester United or Everton or whoever else Leicester whoever come, whoever else comes after that Man City in the League Cup final say there's nothing to say Mourinho is going to play it against quote unquote proper teams but if he does that, <laughs> that is going to be like a big problem I think because that that won't work against anyone good yeah well that I think is a really important point because Mourinho said after the game this is the victory of the dressing room the victory of their spirit the victory of the group that felt ashamed of what happened in the last week to be ashamed I always think is a man's reaction so clearly you know the inference here is that he picked that team because the Arsenal and Dinamo Zagreb games were so awful and that in picking that team, he somehow managed to harness the anger and shame and negative energy from Thursday night and use that in this game. But Spurs have still got 10 games left this season, nine in the league in the League Cup final. And they can't always be relying on this dynamic of provocation and anger and we've got to prove a point and we've got to make amends and we've got to heal the scars from, from the other day. Like, if you're going to win 10 games, you have to have... You have to have you have to have built something yourself, really. You can't just be relying on on harnessing negative energy. So, I don't know how sustainable it is. Like this is a really big question and one that we'll be asking a lot. I think in the next in the next few weeks of this in the last few weeks of the season. So yeah, sustainability is a, a question. But in terms of getting out of the hole that Tottenham were in on Sunday evening, it did work. They're basically down to one game a week now for the rest of the season. I mean, I know yeah. I guess that's a Southampton game to squeeze in somewhere. And I think there's one other midweek game at some point. But as you say, 10 games left, I think eight of them will be kind of weekend games and it should be fairly evenly spread. So I'd like to see Tanganga play more at right back. But I also want to see Aurea play you know, some matches because I think he's done quite well this season uh, and, and it's been an improvement on previous seasons. That's my way of saying I don't really think Matt Doherty should be playing at the moment, which maybe sounds a bit unfair given, you know, the only way he's really ever going to get into form is to play his way into form, I guess. So yeah, Tanganga, it'd be good to see play some minutes between now and the end of the season, certainly more than he's played in the last two months. Roden, obviously, but Mourinho's been kind of chopping and changing the centre-back all season and just clearly hasn't found a partnership that's worked for more than a few weeks at a time. I mean, I do think that's been quite a big problem for the whole team to not have like a sort of recognised solid partnership there and I'm not saying that's necessarily all Mourinho's fault because for one reason or another after a couple of good results and performances you know things you know they've had a bit of a nightmare in the next game or you know there was like all the viral getting that injury or whatever else it's just felt like whenever they build up a bit of steam something goes wrong but with that in mind I definitely think it's there's merit in Roden playing a few more games you know I think I think I've said a couple of times I think it's crazy that they ended up with a situation where he couldn't play in Europe because yeah that would have been such an obvious win I mean and I you know but they really needed to get that deal done earlier in the summer so he could play in the group stage and then like the whole season might be different after that. You just don't know and we'll never know now. Yeah, Vinicius up front, I'm not quite so sure about. It's hard to see Vinicius playing when when Son gets back 
Son, I think, will come in for, for Vinicius, whereas I think Roden, Tanganga, and Lacelso are more deserving of. Yeah, I'd their say places. so. I think that. I mean, certainly the two defenders and the base of the performance, I think, should be certainly in consideration for that next game. I suppose Lacelso is maybe more of a sort of system issue in terms of how you want that midfield to shape up. I wasn't really that sure on the shape yesterday. It seemed to be a kind of 4 2 2 2 with Lacelso yeah. and Lucas, nominally wide players, but playing really like up close to the two strikers and not really much width at all. Requilon yeah. was the only player who provided any width. Yeah, Tanganga got forward a little bit, didn't he? I mean, I think that was the idea, wasn't it? The width was going to come from those fullbacks and I suppose that might have been where Aurier perhaps would have been yeah. better suited. Obviously, he was. I think he was ill, wasn't he? Yeah, Aurier and Alderweireld were ill. Like I say, I mean, I, I know it sounds like we've been a little bit negative about a win, but I think uh, my caveat would certainly be that you know you need to do it against better teams than that, and they've got nine games left, and probably four or five of them are going to be against better teams. So <laughs> let's uh, let, let's see how they do against well, maybe not even Newcastle. Let's see how they do against Manchester United. Normally, we record this podcast on a Monday, and we usually look mainly at the Spurs Premier League game from the weekend, and not so much on the the Europa League game from the previous Thursday. But I think Thursday night's Europa League game was so sensational that we do actually have to talk about it. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what happened. It was a total disaster. Like I think one of the worst, the worst moment of the Mourinho tenure. I think one of the worst moments of his career. Uh, one of Spurs' worst European nights I can remember. And it was all topped off with an interview from Hugo Lloris on BT Sport afterwards, which I think was the most sensational interview given by a Tottenham player on TV that I can remember. I think we are all more than disappointed. It's just uh, a disgrace. Uh, I just hope everyone in the changing room feel responsible of the situation because um, it's a disgrace. We are a club with full of ambition, but... Uh, I just think that the team at the moment is just the reflect of what's going on in the club. We have lack of uh, basics, lack of fundamental. Mentally, we should be stronger, we should be more competitive. Uh, today, uh, I didn't feel that on the field. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, when you are not ready uh, at this level, uh, you pay straight away. and. Uh, doesn't matter with the opponent, there's quality everywhere in Europe and uh, if you don't respect the opponent, uh, it's kind of a uh, punition and uh, that's what happened today. I think we all belong to the team. Uh, football is not about individual players. I mean, uh, it's not because there is two, three, four players that are going to step up. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, we need more than that. It really laid bare the massive issues inside the club at the moment. and. Even though Spurs won on Sunday, I think those those issues haven't gone away, James. And I think it does uh, it does really reinforce this sense. I think that the last ten games of the season, the success of this season, the success of the Mourinho experiment, are still very much on a knife edge right now. Yeah, I mean, those the kind of problems that Larus has alluded to aren't the kind of problems that sort of appear over the course of a week or whatever or, or disappear, you know, because you win one league game. I mean, it is just a thing that clearly is a, a big issue. It wasn't the kind of sort of rip-snorting performance on Sunday, was it, that you think is going to banish all of those sort of negative thoughts and emotions? If there are problems behind the scenes in the dressing room or whatever else, then that is kind of presumably still going to linger for a bit longer. I mean, it was quite unusual to see a player speak quite so frankly after a game. It does make you wonder where that kind of thing has been for the last few years because there have definitely been other moments where 
it's felt like them just sliding and there's not been any kind of noise out of the dressing room saying, you know, anything other than the sort of bog standard platitudes, you know, we need to do better on whatever. You know, maybe it would have been good to have heard this kind of thing early last season. I know obviously Lloris was injured at that point. Um, so maybe it wouldn't have been from him, I guess. I, I've been trying to like quantify that performance or result or, or measure it up against the other kind of humiliations that Spurs have suffered in the sort of 25 years that I've been watching them play. Hmm. And it would probably be one of the very worst ones or one of the like most sort of stinging ones in terms of, you know, the whole season was invested in that competition, really. Yeah. I mean, I know we had like a sort of brief dalliance with being like in the title race or whatever. But, you know, as I think I said at the time, when it's in the first half of the season, it doesn't really count. You know, the whole season really was geared towards winning this competition. And, you know, when you're talking about a cup competition, obviously you can lose to a good team. And, you know, have, have the misfortune of playing someone really good and, and then, then playing really well on the day and then getting knocked out. And then never happens, you kind of have to say, well, that's the nature of the beast. But with this, I, I mean, I don't want to sound disrespectful to Dano Zagreb because obviously they're a good team, but I, I, like over the course of that 210 minutes of football, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think they were really that good. No, not at um, all. They were fine. They weren't, they weren't great. I mean, I don't know where you'd rank them in the Premier League. They'd kind of be like a sort of, I don't know, like 15th or something, maybe. It's been generous. I, I, yeah, I just, for, for most of those two games, all they were trying to do was really kick people. Yeah. And then when they got to the last sort of 20 minutes of the second leg, when they'd got, you know, when they were 1 0 up on the night, it, it, obviously that gave them a bit of belief that they could throw men forward and see if they can make something happen. And I don't really think Spurs panicked. I just think they were just bad for the for the whole game until they needed to score. And even then, they weren't really much better, were they? I'd say because so much of the season was invested in that competition and because they'd, uh, cause they'd invested so much in it over the course of the last like six, seven months, you know, you think about going for all of those qualifying matches and the toll you can probably safely assume that's had on the league form at yeah. points. And I do think kind of the, whatever else we said about the tactics and negativity and whatever else, you know, the fact they've played all these games in Europe for the whole season, playing midweek more, more often mm. than not, that will definitely have taken a massive toll on the performances, particularly through that middle part of the season. So, you know, it just hasn't been worth it, has it, really? I know you can no. say, this isn't like a, a great run that you're going to remember fondly. It's not like sort of the, the 2007 UEFA Cup quarterfinal run where, you know, it was our first season back in Europe for years and it, it was a it was a great adventure. This is just, this is just rubbish. They've, they've, you know, knocked out a load of rubbish teams. Um We'll always have Wolfsburger AC. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I, you know, I, you know, I talked very fondly about that bail goal in the first leg of that game, and it felt like a turning point. And obviously, that sort of particular narrative arc has very quickly uh, curved back on itself. So, yeah, maybe I won't remember that one so fondly after all. It's just, it's just felt like a complete waste of time. And you know, they were one 0 down in. Uh, oh, uh, is it Sc- Scott Scandija? Was it the team they played in the first? Scandic, yeah, in Albania. Like, Albania, sorry. I think it's Albania. Yeah, you think you're right. But, I mean, this is disrespectful. Uh, they may have sort of just lost that game. If they hadn't yeah, come back in true. that game. Like, you know, you ride up the humiliation of that. You would get that your system by sort of, you know, two weeks later, win a couple of games early in the season, you know, your Southampton game and your Man United game or whatever. And then like, the whole season is different after that, isn't it? I mean, you're focusing entirely on the league and then it can just be a totally different season. It... it it just feels like such a waste of time. That's what's so draining about it. This whole season has been like, you know, if you're a fan and you're watching every game at home on TV, and I appreciate that's how some fans have to watch it anyway for, for various different mm. reasons. It's just made this whole thing feel so pointless. 
And I know they're still in a cup final and people will say that's being a bit dramatic, but they they are going to lose that cup final to Man City. I hate to tell you. And it's just, it's just kicked, it's just kicked the ass out of the season, basically. Yeah. It's just, it's just really just made the whole thing feel like it's a complete waste of time. And the next two months are a complete waste of time because I, I'm not confident they're going to get top four now. If you look at Leicester and Chelsea's fixtures, I think there's enough games there that they'll win probably quite comfortably. Fifth, the finish above West Ham. Everybody knows how important that is to me. It's very important to mm. me to finish above West Ham. And I'm actually quite confident they could do that. Fifth place, losing the League Cup final. This, actually, this has just come to me now. That was basically Pochettino's first season, wasn't it? Didn't they finish fifth that season? I can't remember if it was fifth or sixth off the top of my head. It's very similar. So yeah. maybe they'll go be in the European Cup final again in four years. You're right. That they was won. Spurs' 13th, uh, 13th Europa League game, I think. And given they've played 28 Premier League games, that's basically half the Premier League season. Yeah. spent in Europe with all the travel that involves and you know exacerbated by the fact that the players are exhausted anyway because they've been playing non-stop football since June with barely a proper pre-season and they've had an incredibly unfair schedule this year and you know it's not it's not a ridiculous hypothetical to say that if Spurs had lost early on to Shkendija as James said I think at the minimum they'd be five points better off in the league they might be ten points better off in the league and um, would have would have, have done much better and clearly as, as James says this means that Spurs are now likely to have a trophyless season. Um, the season is still alive because they're not in a terrible Premier League position after those recent wins against uh, Fulham, Burnley, Palace, and now Aston Villa. But yeah, it's all it's all going to come down to this incredibly tight race for fourth, fifth, and sixth with Chelsea and West Ham. If I was being optimistic, I'd say, well, West Ham have got no squad depth at all. That much has been really clear in the last few games. They're, they're, they're really, really good given given their resources, but it's uh, I think their squad is going to catch up with them. Chelsea have got an FA Cup semi-final, Champions League quarter-final. They're going to have some really big games coming up, and I, you know it's going to be a bit of a juggling act for Thomas Tuchel to get them through and maybe they'll drop points that said as James says they do have easy games coming up Liverpool maybe they'll focus on the, on their Champions League run uh, may, I don't know whether they'll be able to turn it around in the Premier League they've still got big problems with injuries and squad and squad depth and the, and the defence but if I had to if I had to guess I'd be pretty surprised if Spurs came fourth I'm not saying it won't happen but I think they'll probably end up with a league record kind of similar to last year where they got sixth with a points total somewhere in the mid-60s. That sounds about right. I guess the next question is, assuming they do come fifth or sixth and don't win the League Cup final, whether or not they can, you know, this is a topic we talk about all the time, whether or not they can justify keeping Mourinho on as manager if they haven't made any progress this season. I just don't know. I don't know what Daniel Levy will do in that situation. If they came fourth, I think he'd stay. If they came ninth, I think he might go. If they come sixth, I don't know. I just don't know. I think the decision in Levy's mind will probably be the other way around. It'll be whether it's bad enough to justify getting rid of him, won't it? Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that, that's, that's, how, that's my, how his mind will work, particularly yeah. given the amount of money they're going to have to spend yeah. on getting shot of him. Yeah, and credibility. As I, I think the base case assumption is that he'll stay unless things are so bad that he has to go. And that will either be there's a collapse in league form and they finish terribly. If you know the fans come back to White Hart Lane and sing repeatedly for him to leave, then maybe that will force Levy's mind. But I think the I think the assumption has to be that he'll stay. Two other things before we wrap up. Lots of talk at the moment on Harry Kane's future. Is he going to stay at Tottenham? I've discussed this with David Ornstein on the Ornstein Chapman podcast this morning. 
it's a really big topic. My my personal opinion on this, and I might be wrong, is that I think it's very likely that Kane will, will still be a Tottenham player next season. I think, you know, I, I'm sure he might be interested in what other options there would be out there for him. But I don't think he has as much power right now as you might think. You know, he's got three years left in his contract. Daniel Levy has absolutely no need to sell him. And I don't think that in post-COVID economics... I don't think there really is going to be the market for a 28-year-old. I think the good old days where players like Griezmann, Hazard, Alexis Sanchez, Higuain would go for massive money at the age of 28, I don't think that's going to happen post-COVID when you've got Mbappe, Haaland, Jao Felix on the market. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That Haaland and Mbappe, for different reasons, are going to be like available relatively cheap this summer, aren't they? Because Haaland's... Yeah has that contract clause that actually doesn't come into play until next summer. I think it's he can leave, is it 60 million or something like yeah. that that he can leave for? But obviously, you know, if someone then bids 120 million or whatever, I mean, this isn't me saying this is going to happen mm. hypothetically. Please don't quote me on Football mm. Transfer Tavern or whatever those websites are. <laughs> uh, you know, if someone bids £120 million, that's going to be something for Dortmund to think about, isn't it? If it's yeah. losing them for £60 million less than that the following year, then that is the thought process. And then Mbappe is out of contract that summer as well, isn't he? The summer after, in 18 yeah. months or whatever. So PSV have a decision, if he doesn't sell any contract between now and the summer, do they sell him for a similar sort of fee or risk losing him for nothing the following year? So... You could probably safely assume, but if those two players are available for a similar fee, they'd be ahead of him in the queue, particularly given the age differences. Yeah. They're both sort of seven, eight years younger, or six, seven years younger. Yeah. So, yeah. you factor that in as well. I mean, if you know Real Madrid are looking for a centre forward, Manchester City, Barcelona, maybe Bayern. I don't know. They'll be looking for someone to replace Lewandowski at some point. Uh, it, you know, you think like they might be ahead of him in the pecking order, and then if he's even if he's third in that list, it's not often you see like three elite forward players all move for massive money in one window, and yeah. then you think ah, maybe that just decreases the chances of him going. Maybe because I don't think he'd like. I don't really see that he'd go to PSG to replace Mbappe effectively. Yeah, I don't see that he'd go to Dortmund to replace Haaland. Really, I mean, I, no. I, obviously these are great clubs, but I'm I, I'd yeah. like trying to think of his mindset and if he's going to go, the fact that he's going to go to one of the top, top, top clubs. Three tops. Um, so yeah, Barcelona, Real Madrid. I mean, I don't know. I, he's, he strikes me as, I'm not sure that we necessarily even go abroad. They haven't got any money, I mean? I just, those teams as well. Yeah, sure, actually, yeah, exactly, yeah. So th- there are very few realistic options for him. And I think I've seen a couple of people suggest like Manchester United would be, it was you that said this, the kind of club who might like but, uh, kind of throw caution to the wind a bit more and sign someone who yeah. was like PK rather than Young, uh, who was a big name and had kind of done that kind of thing before. But even then, if Manchester United are going to spend 120 million pounds in the summer, if they, if honest to God, if they spend that money on centre forward or, or centre forwards, they're absolutely insane. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many things like they've got Greenwood and Rashford, and I know Martial's not in a great season, but he's decent. And they're like some of the players in that team. I mean, <sighs> some of the other players in that team. Uh, it is mad that they would spend money. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. it wouldn't be proven because obviously he would. But if they're going to spend 120 million pounds or 130, 40 million pounds, they shouldn't be spending it on Harry Kane, basically. Yeah. In my opinion. I agree. Well, um, look, we'll, uh, 
whatever happens, this will obviously be a talking point through the summer and beyond. So we will uh, we will keep talking about it. But that's how we see it at the moment. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up is uh, we are doing a series on cult heroes on The Athletic coming next week. Uh, and I have interviewed Timo Tainio, the uh, the legend of the Martin Yol and Wando Ramos eras. That will be running on The Athletic in the next few days. Um, that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you to producer Tom and to James. If you've got any other topics we you want us to talk about on next week's show, which of course is during the international break, then just tweet us or DM me. Uh, and we'll try and get around to them. So we'll be back again next week and then back the week after to talk about the Newcastle United game and see whether Tottenham have, in fact, managed to uh, sustain that momentum from the Aston Villa game. The Athletic.